Welcome to The Making of, a Nat Geo podcast. I'm Stacey Wilson-Hunt, and with me today are two of the executive producers from Cosmos, Possible Worlds, Andrean and Brandon Braga. Welcome to you both. How are you? Well, I'm very well. I'm really happy to see Brandon again. <laughs> How long has it been since you've seen each other? It's been way too long. <laughs> yeah, we've, we've, spoke, we've spoken a, a couple times on the phone, but, but you, we, you, look, you look great. Thank yeah. you so much. Brandon, you do too, always. Yeah. Good. The last few months have, have been good to you, which is, which is great news. We've been lucky. Yes, it's, it's good to count blessings during this time for sure. Um, and obviously, we're here to talk about Cosmos and your incredible achievement in, in this series, which it's hard to even process all the information that we learn watching this show. So it's which, which makes it exciting. And, and I do think about the things that I've that I've seen and listened to. Periodically, they do sort of come to me. But before we talk about the show, I would love to know just sort of the answer to a basic question, which is when did you first fall in love with science? And Annie, I'll start with you. That's a great question. I fell in love with science when I was a very small girl and I was sitting on the front steps of our little house in Queens. And my dad came home from work and he smelled great. And he leaned down to give me a big hug and he pointed to the stars and he said, some of those stars aren't really there anymore. And I looked at him because I, you know, he was such a truthful person and I, <laughs> I couldn't believe what he was saying. And I said, how can that be? And he told me about light travel time and the fact that the stars were so far away that it took so long for their light to reach us that during that time, some of them had died. And uh, that was the beginning. Wow. And how old were you when you heard this? I think I could have been seven or eight. Wow. That's an early exposure and early time to fall in love. <laughs> yes, exactly. What did your dad do for work? Was he a scientist himself? Not at all. He was, uh, he had an advanced degree in journalism, but he couldn't make a living doing that. So he became the, a manufacturer of women's knitwear. And he worked in the <laughs> garment district and he raised up our whole family and his parents from a much tougher kind of life to a very good one. And uh, he lived to be 99 across the street from where I'm sitting. And he was a complete inspiration to everyone who knew him. Oh, that's such a beautiful entree to to wonder and uh, and knowing what's out there and wanting to know what's out there. So that's a, a lucky thing you experienced. I, I was very lucky. And Brandon, how about you? When did your science love affair begin? Well, <clears throat> uh, probably with my grandfather, Felix, um, who gave me a microscope uh, that he had as a boy. And... Um, I think that's where my fasc fascination with the microverse began, because uh, at, as a eight or nine year old, I had no idea that there were other scales of life, and that we are just one particular scale. And um, in fact, when I read uh, the scripts that Annie had written for the 2014 season, my favorite episode was called Deeper, Deeper, Deeper Still, which 
was about the microverse. And um, that's how it started for me. Hmm. And what was the first thing you remember seeing under the microscope? Uh, I knew you were going to ask that. Uh, I don't, <laughs> it's an inevitable question. <laughs> I don't remember. I think, you know, actually, I do remember a, a, a hair. Really? A hair. <laughs> a, a hair. He, he put a hair, uh, he took a slide and he put a hair between the two pieces of glass. Wow. And it, what's nice about hair is that we all have access to at least one of those in the moment. <laughs> Yeah. Well, then, of course, everything everything went under that microscope that I could get my hands on. Probably things that you that your parents said, well, maybe you shouldn't be looking at that under under the microscope. <laughs> and when we talk about the series, uh, you know, Anne or Annie, as you told us to call you today. Oh, you can call me either. I like them both. OK, well, they're both very charming. So I'll, I'll stick with Anne just for simplicity. Besides you, obviously, no one is more important to the legacy of Cosmos than Carl Sagan. If it's not too personal, Anne, I would love to hear the story of how you and Carl first met. Well, I remember it as if it were just a few moments ago. Uh, I was invited by my friend Nora Ephron to oh a my. small wow. dinner party at her house. This already sounds like a dream. <laughs> it was, I tell you, it really was from beginning to end and beyond a dream. And... Uh, I had had lunch with Nora a couple of weeks before, and she said, I met the most fascinating man, and uh, I just think you'd really like each other. Oh, my um, goodness. And so I'm going to have a dinner party, and uh, and a very small dinner party. Why don't you come? So I did, and I walked into Nora's apartment, and before I got into the doorway, I heard the craziest, freest most uninhibited laugh I'd ever heard. And it sounded like something in a mental hospital, but it was so great. And I thought, who is, whose laugh is that? And it was Carl, and he was lying on Nora's living room rug and with his hands clapped behind his head, big smile. And that was the first time we met. That was in oh my gosh. 1974. Oh my gosh. I, if I could transport to anywhere in the world right now, I want to be at that party. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> and Nora, gosh, what a what a power! I think of her often as well. What a what a mind and what a what a, what a mind person. Yeah. And that was before her. She started directing movies. She was an amazing journalist and essayist yes. at that point. And that's right. probably she was the Dorothy Parker of her time. I like to say. <laughs> Truly. Yep. So tell me how the two of you collaborated on this most recent installment of Cosmos. And Brandon, you obviously have a lot of experience in scripted narrative television, but tell me how how you became part of this incredible fray. How, oh, uh, how I how I became part of it? Mm -hmm. uh, I think it was in 2012 or 13, and I can't remember. I got a call from uh, our mutual friend, Seth MacFarlane. Mm -hmm. Good friend to have. Who's asked if... I was a fan of Cosmos, and I, I said, are you kidding? <laughs> of course I am. Uh, he introduced Anne and myself, and and uh, I'm very grateful for that. Um, it was the, the best introduction of my life. Oh, that's great. Seth is really a, a science and space nerd, self-admittedly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and without him, there never would have actually been... Uh, a, a second season of Cosmos, let yeah. alone a third, 
because he was so committed to it. And, you know, he he really stood up for us, championed us uh, to Fox, persuaded uh, Peter Rice to to put it on Fox, which was absolutely for us the ideal audience, uh, the people we wanted to reach the most. And then he did he did several things that were critical to the success of the show. But equally important was his introduction of Brannon, hmm. because Brannon came in on season two at that critical moment and brought exactly all of the gifts, talents, um, everything that was that we needed in order hmm. to make that second season. I, I can't, I can't overemphasize how critical it was to uh, to the series we made in 2014 and to this one. Hmm. It's wonderful, a cosmic connection, so to speak. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's been around 40 years since the first installment of this series. And Anne, I'd love to know what in what ways do you think making this show is easier now than than in the beginning, but also more difficult? Obviously, you have a lot more technology and resources available, but is it more difficult now with so much information available? Is it actually more overwhelming in a sense? You know, I don't think it's more overwhelming because remember when uh, we began the first season of Cosmos. Carl and I had never done anything like that before. And uh, I think that's part of its charm and its success is that, you know, we didn't really know uh, what you couldn't do, what you weren't supposed to do. And so, um, you know, having that experience as an existence theorem, you know, as a proof that it could be done, was what's really the great leap. And after that, over the years, I was, you know, I have been the lucky recipient of, of email and messages from the whole planet because Cosmos, the first one, the second one, and now this one has been seen in at least 170, 180 countries. Wow. And so I'm constantly hearing from people who tell me that they are, they are a scientist or they teach science or they study science because of the original series, and even now uh, as a result of the second series. So it wasn't harder now uh, because there was so much that I wanted to say, and mm -hmm. I was so lucky to have the very per perfect partner to mm -hmm. do it uh, with. And so Brandon and I would sit in a room together uh, for months at a time, and there is, you're right, this have, this, these years have been the most eventful in the history of science, but not really in terms of the big leaps. We haven't mm. had a big leap, um, you know, in actually in quite a few years. Mm. And, so, and so it wasn't really hard to distill the stories that we both wanted to tell because we had this great big white wall um, and we could cover it with, uh, you know, and, and sort of winnow each of the episodes. And, uh, and so the, it, it actually was a kind of feast of ideas. I think I can speak for both of us in saying that we learned so much in the process of writing the show. 
Hmm, I love that. And, and on that topic, Brandon, maybe if you could walk me through a little bit of the process in that winnowing down of ideas. I mean, it's so expansive. It's hard for me to even imagine how you're plucking certain themes out of the air. What was your process in, in sort of scaling what you wanted to talk about into a manageable amount of subjects? <laughs> yeah. So uh, January 30th, 2015, I have this note. I brought a notebook to Andrian's house in Ithaca, New York, and we spent three days together. This was at the uh, very beginning of the development of Cosmos Possible Worlds. And Anne had some ideas that she wanted to explore, and we met, we met with some various scientists over those three days t to pepper them with questions. But remarkably, Anne, the ideas that I have written down here for the 13 episodes are pretty much what we ended up doing, generally speaking. Like, it hmm. was a really fruitful 72 hours. Um, and, uh, and from there, it was just a matter of sitting in a room and structuring the stories and then started writing the teleplays, which look very much like a, a, a one-hour narrative drama, hmm. um, is what they, uh, you know, everything is, that Neil is saying is you know, has been scripted ahead of time. But the the greatest fun was falling down some rabbit holes, uh, thinking we were going to be writing about one thing and ending up finding some other avenue and narrative hmm. tributary together. And, um, you know, there's one episode in particular uh, that deals with the mycelium network that connects all of the trees on the, of, of the planet that mm -hmm. neither of us had really had a full grasp of. And discovering that, I think it, it, it shows up on screen. I mean, there's a certain discovery, genuine discovery on our part that I think has helped the show. I mean, it, it, it comes across, you know? Hmm. And Anne, how excited were these scientists you spoke to to share their, <laughs> I, I can imagine uh, they probably could not get out their pitches fast enough to you in that moment. <laughs> you know, it's so true. It's so true. I mean, Hollywood has such science envy and science has such Hollywood envy. So, you know, I can totally always, see that. Yeah. So it always surprises me that more of the big blockbuster sci-fi movies, um, don't utilize uh, the gifts of graduate students and research associates yes. who will work for less money than anyone and who <laughs> have all this knowledge to, so that you can get the physics right visually, so that you can give uh, any frame the kind of verisimilitude of life, of nature, of reality. Mm. And Brandon and I were very tremendously fortunate in the people, uh, in the team that we had to uh, actually, you know, we could have any fantasy about uh, any moment in space and time. And we were so lucky that Jeff Oaken, our visual effects supervisor, was really up to the, to the challenge of bringing, of bringing what we wanted to see to visual uh, magnificence. So... Yeah, I have the same feelings yeah. about how journalists are depec depicted in films, too. And I always wonder, just ask me. I'll tell you what this yeah. job really looks like. <laughs> yeah, it, rare, it rarely, they rarely get it right. It's always just a little phony. 
it's always a little phony, yes, but that's for another day. So I would love to listen to a clip from, it's actually the opening moments of this most recent season, episode one, Ladder to the Stars. So let's, let's have a listen to that. We were hunters and foragers. The frontier was everywhere. We were bounded only by the earth and the ocean and the sky. The open road still softly calls like a nearly forgotten song of childhood. For all our failings, despite our limitations and fallibilities, we humans are capable of greatness. How far will our nomadic species have wandered by the end of the next century? And the next millennium? So, Anne, you uh, wisely and, and sort of magically find wonderful ways to infuse Carl into the series, which is so wonderful. And there's even a simulation in which your own daughter is featured playing his mother. Is that correct? We'll yes, make sure I got that correct. Okay. Right. <laughs> Just wanted Sasha, to make sure I got that correct. Yes, yeah, Sasha Sagan as Rachel Molly Gruber Sagan. It's so beautiful. And to see something like that simulated and also just to hear Carl's voice, how does that feel for you emotionally to, to just know that he's still here and he's so much a part of this still? Uh, it is uh, actually an indescribable feeling because, you know, if you lose someone you love and they sort of slip beneath the waves and you feel as if maybe you're the only person who truly misses them, or maybe you're part of a tiny group of people who do, a family, friends. But for Carl, what I think is so inspiring is that people all over the world, more people now love him and understand the importance of what he was saying, even than when he was alive. And, you know, obviously for me personally, the emotions are indescribable because, um, you know, I feel as if I witnessed, participated in something that was just transcendent. And so uh, because I don't believe in an afterlife and I feel that, you know, that I'll never see Carl again, the fact that I can have that magnificent voice and mm. hear it and also be a means for, for communicating it to, the, to new generations uh, is a great comfort to me. Mm. That is such a gift. And, and thank you for sharing that with us, too, because this is it's obviously a private process to lose someone, but to also share it so publicly and, and gener you know, generously, I think it's just so wonderful. So thank you for that. Thank you, Stacey. You know, I think this planet needs more Carl than ever. And yes. uh, so it makes me really happy to be part of doing that. Oh, so wonderful. You know, outside of Carl and, and Neil, who are both obviously integral to the series, you have also been able to recruit some other famous folks to help along the way, including Viggo Mortensen and Sir Patrick Stewart, who has one of the all-time great voices. <laughs> How do you go about recruiting some of these great people, and what is their level of enthusiasm to be part of this series? Well, you know, I, 
I would, Patrick Stewart, I think, when I mentioned Brandon's name to Patrick Mm. Stewart, you know, at first he was like, I don't know, I'm very busy, you know, and then he was like, Brandon, Brandon's on the show, okay, I'll do it. And uh, for Viggo Mortensen, that, uh, he was a friend, he is a friend of our uh, executive producer, our fellow executive producer, Jason Clark, and Jason persuaded him to talk to me. And once we got talking, it just, I don't know, it was amazing. And, you know, particularly thrilling because the story of Avilov is one I wanted to tell for over 20 years. And I cannot get over what the magic that Viggo Mortensen was able to accomplish. Somehow, I heard all of the wounded optimism and hope for the world and the crushed dreams and the dignity and the, and the, the willingness to die, to die for science. Hmm. In his voice, he, he just hit it out of the park. Oh, that's beautiful. And speaking of Patrick Stewart, Brannon, you have the distinction of, of working in a lot of Star Trek content. And is it true that you were an intern on Next Generation? Yeah, I had an internship uh, through the Academy of TV Arts and Sciences. Um, I was just coming out of UC Santa Cruz without a degree. Uh, (laughs) That sounds familiar to a lot of people. For for the record. (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, And didn't know what I was going to do. And I applied for this internship. I I had applied for it before and not gotten it, but I was lucky to get it this final time. And I just, by chance, ended up on um, that show right in between seasons three and four. Oh, wow. And then uh, it was an eight-week internship, but I ended up, uh, I didn't leave the building for 17 years. (laughs) (laughs) It was a strange, strange, strange journey. But hopefully at some point you got paid, right? After the internship ended? It was a paid (laughs) internship. So one of those rare ones. Uh, Wow. But but I've worked on a lot of, I was trying to count how many different ships I've worked on. I think it might be six ships, but uh, wow. the, the coolest was is the ship of the imagination for sure. Oh, I love that. And did you actually meet and spend time with Sir Patrick back then, or did you get to know him later on? I was I was terrified of Patrick. I, mean, I, I was twenty five. I was twenty five years old. I had no right to be writing for him. Uh, it, it was it was actually later that we became clo- closer. Mm-hmm. I, I just, I wouldn't go anywhere near the set. I was too scared. <laughs> I recently um, interviewed him and I have to say he's one of the most magical human beings I have ever come in contact with. Just a stunning presence on earth. I just adore him. So I had a question, you know, having worked in the sort of fantastical world of science on those shows, was there something about even just dealing with a fake scientific vernacular that has helped you sort of immersing yourself in those worlds, has it helped you in creating Cosmos as well? I'm sure that science fiction, my science fiction experience has commingled with the science to some degree. But I I have to say, uh, because I was, there was a period of time I was uh, working with Anne on Cosmos and working with Seth on the Orville, which is basically (laughs) Star Trek (laughs) 2. With more laughs, with more laughs. And I would work with Anne in the mornings for for three or four hours and then I would work with Seth for three or four hours and that they're completely different um, 
it, they're just completely different. One one is about a multi, multiple characters and um, and you can just you can make stuff up uh, stuff up as long as it's in the realm of plausibility. But uh, Cosmos is just it's a diff, different experience. So I I didn't real my answer to you is um, I'm sure it's it's helped, but probably not as much as you might think. Hmm. Various separate skill sets, so to speak. Yeah. So, Anne, this most recent season of Cosmos, because now you do have access to such incredible technology for visual effects, simulations, animation, how do you work to balance so it's not so CGI heavy? Because you also do want to use a lot of real world visuals. You want to shoot in forests. You want Neil to be in real places to also bring, literally bring it back to Earth. So how do you work to balance so it's not, you know, too much like a video game and then not also just like a nature show? So what is that balance that you're working with? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Brandon and I together, you know, really try to leaven the episodes with um, switch it up frequently enough. But also, you know, what is Cosmos? Cosmos is about nature. And we don't usually think of the distant stars and galaxies as being part of nature. But of course they are, just like mm. we are star stuff. We are part of it. Mm-hmm. And so you're absolutely right. We really wanted uh, the series to be visually vibrant and to be completely sort of rippling with life. And you can't do that in... T- most of the time in the ship of the imagination, although Neil is very lively. But, you know, you you really want to get outside and breathe that sweet air and just really feel that it's all of a piece and that there isn't that false dichotomy, that wall between here and there. And so, you know, it's just a matter of, you know, we want to make sure that there's the right amount of animation. We want to make sure there's the right amount of VFX. And we also just want to feel the beauty of life throughout the series, throughout the episode. And also you want younger people, kids who are used to seeing (laughs) computer generated imagery, maybe you want to kind of grab them and it makes it more exciting for younger people who are watching, I think, when they start to see a simulated astronaut. And by the way, people of color, depicted throughout the series in ways that I have to imagine is is very novel to a lot of people watching to see themselves on screen like that is very impactful. Yeah, well, one of our uh, one of our associate producers, uh, Sam Sagan, uh, and uh, and Brandon and I felt very strongly that uh, we always want to do, you know, just like when years before when Carl and I were making the Voyager interstellar message. You know, we were determined that it wasn't going to be just a message from one group of people on the planet Mm. because we had that perspective that it was, you know, we were all in this. And so we ended up with music from 27 of the world's great musical traditions before there was even a concept of world music anywhere. And so, you know, that's, I guess that's always, I grew up in, in Queens, as I said earlier, and, you know, with all kinds of people. And I knew from my childhood that that was, that was a great gift. That Mm -hmm. was really, uh, you know, what made life much more, much richer. So, yeah. 
Queens is essentially a microcosm of the entire earth. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's right. In, in a smaller space. It's a wonderful place to grow up. Yeah. And, and, and on that note, and for this is for both of you, whoever wants to answer, you know, it's sort of impossible to calculate just how important Neil is to this process and to selling this show in such a convincing way. His passion is just exudes. It just drips off of him. And it, and it makes the, the viewers so excited because he is so excited. So tell me, how important is he to sort of carrying on Carl's legacy, but also refreshing it for this new generation? I think Neil has done... Uh, remarkable terrific job on season two he was he was just what we wanted him and hoped Mm -hmm. he would be and on season three i think he got even better and uh and you know when we were first when i was first thinking about cosmos and what the second season would be i had known neil you know since he was in his 20s and Mm -hmm. so he was the only person who i wanted for uh, the role of host. And, uh, but I also think that Cosmos, you know, I mean, think of how big Carl's shoes were to fill. Mm. And, you know, and, and, and think of the achievement of Neil, uh, you know, really doing such a, a brilliant performance and connecting with people and exciting them uh, uh, about science. And I, you know, I could envision in the future, you know, that this is a role that that many scientists could play, hmm. because uh, you know, all you really need is to have that feeling that you're in love and you want to communicate that. And uh, I think it works. You know, it's 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 really wanting to to spread the word that makes it so in, so infectious and so so easy uh, to to become in, engaged. Very true. Well said. Brandon, for you, how how is a show like Cosmos even more important now that we've seen, we'll just say how science has been hotly debated in the last few months? <laughs> what sort of meaning does a show like Cosmos have now? That, the, that literally the entire world has been put on pause to, in, in each person's perspective way, reflect on what science means to them, whether they believe in it or not. They've been forced to address it in a way that I don't, I, in my lifetime, has never taken place. You know, I can really only, I can't answer the, that's such an expansive question, and, um, but I can answer it from a personal perspective, which is to say when I saw Cosmos, and I was in high school, it really changed my life. It gave me crit- basic critical thinking skills. It, it shared with me the import- that science wasn't an, you know, an abstract concept. It, w- it was a way of looking at, the, at nature and a w- way of understanding our place in it and a way of being s- skeptical of you know, which is, is a word, a terrible word. I wish there was a better word. It mm. has such negative connotations. But it in does. fact, being able to, uh, you know. Maybe uh, questioning a, is a better a, word? A question. It, but it was a, a set of, it was, I learned, I learned so much watching Cosmos. But most importantly, I was given a deep understanding of what science is, a set of tools, a way of a- ascertaining reality hmm. that I, that I hope other young people have 
a similar experience because once once you understand that, there's no you're you're equipped, and mm-hmm. you're not going to be fooled. That would be my hope for a show like this at this point in time. Well, I talked with Neil about this idea of there being sort of this crucial window in a young person's life when this type of exposure to science is so meaningful in helping them create that part of the brain that will allow them to question and ask smart inquiries of themselves and the world moving forward. So I think that I think you've you've hit that in the sense that the exposure is key. And what you do with that is sort of ultimately up to you later. So and you're giving people the exposure. That's all you can do. (laughs) And then the final question for both of you, in a time of obviously, you know, hotly debated uh, issues surrounding science when they're being politicized and also denigrated at times, what can each of us do on a daily basis to, to not necessarily prevent these things from happening, but to just boost the meaning of science in our own lives and to those around us? Well, for me, I think it begins in early childhood. And I think that the most significant thing that any parent or anyone or grandparent or someone who who has who has a child in their life the most significant thing they can do is at that moment where they go through this period of asking question after question and even no matter how tedious it gets you know (laughs) is to is to uh welcome them in to Mm the generations of searchers to to say happily freely i don't know the answer if you don't know the answer <laughs> and then just to, to take a hand and say let's we'll find it together because you know when when my kids were young uh, you know we couldn't just look at our phone and then get the answer <laughs> we would take the very heavy encyclopedia britannica off the the high shelf, you know, and and it was a kind of a, a ritual in our household, and it had been that way in in my own family when I was growing up, and that was so important. First of all, it gave you the sense that there was no such thing as a stupid question, hmm. that you could ask those questions instead of keeping them inside because you were afraid to sound stupid, but also that there were pathways to find out the answers. And there were such things as answers, not absolute truths, but reliable, repeatable uh, skeins of evidence that you could find. And I just think that it really, it starts when we're so small. And once you're on that path and you've been given the confidence to do that searching, it makes a tremendous difference. The other thing as adults is that, you know, we have gotten so used to being lied to so chronically that we almost don't even notice anymore. Mm. And I feel like leaders who have contempt for science, who have contempt for reality, who have contempt for the electorate cannot cannot be allowed to attain higher office. We have to stop them because now it's not just a question of having, you know, the kind of civilization that you'd like to have, but instead it's the actual future of our civilization. It's chances for survival. 
This right. skepticism is, as we say in Cosmos, you know, it's 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 an a, it's a survival advantage. It's an evolutionary gift that the environment and nature and our ancestors have has given us. And we, if if we don't wake up from our sleepwalking and start acting pretty soon, and I mean now, then our our civilization is 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 doomed. Hmm. And we are seeing in real time how an uneducated electorate is is really can hurt itself. <laughs> I mean, we are literally seeing that play and out that, in, in that, front of us. And that from day one in 1978, that has been the dream of Cosmos. Love democracy. I love the dream of democracy. And without an informed electorate in a civilization completely dependent on science and high technology, uh, we are in such big trouble. Yes, hard to argue with that. Brandon, did you want to add anything to that? Uh, what could I possibly add? <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty well said, I must say. <laughs> well, I want to thank both of you for being here today. We so appreciate your time and all the hard work you put into this glorious piece of television. It's just a wonderful, it's just a wonderful gift to us, especially right now. So what, thank you so much for all your efforts. Stacy, it was mm -hmm. such a pleasure. I really enjoyed our conversation. Oh, I'm so glad. It was glad. so good to see and talk to Brandon again. <laughs> oh, thank, thank you. you so much. That was really fun. And I'm I'm obsessed with this Nora Ephron dinner party. That's going to really ah. stick with me for a long time. You actually remind me of Nora. You have, thank you. You have her same energy and, and the, the humor and everything. So, wow. Thank you so much, Stacey. That's a very high compliment. I, oh. I cherish it. <laughs> You can learn more about Cosmos Possible Worlds online at natgeotv.com slash FYC. I'm Stacey Wilson-Hunt. Thank you so much for listening. The Making of, a Nat Geo podcast, is a National Geographic production. Executive produced by Stephanie Montgomery and Chris Alpert. Hosted by Stacey Wilson-Hunt. Written and produced by Dave Beesing, Ted Woods, Jason Jackson, Kevin Horton, and Stacey Wilson-Hunt. Production coordinator, Juliana Parisi and in association with Benstown, McVeigh Media, and Sound That Brands.